0: Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book. A reading rainbow. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Keto and Crime and Thought Crime. I sat through five hours of Chad Daybell on Audible for you guys, so let's talk about it. We're going to talk about two of Chad Daybell's books today on Keto and Crime and Thought Crime. Welcome to Thought Crime and Keto Crime, where Tracy does the sleuthing so you don't have to. All right. I uh, actually purchased, well, with my Audible credits, I purchased two of Chad Daybell's books. First, I'm going to give a kind of an overview of his books as they appear on Audible. They are also available for purchase as a paperback, I believe, on Amazon. I doubt he has hardback editions. But um first thing you need to realize, all his books are relatively short. Um they're all around 200 pages and less. And as far as an audible read, uh, they range in time stamps of like an hour and a half up to just over four hours. Now, a lot of the books I've listened to on audible are 40 or 50 hours listen time. So this is, he writes very short books. I would say that his book series, his Standing on Holy Ground, Book series, which I read the first book in that series, and then one of his instructional books as well. Um, if you put all those books together, it would be the size of a traditional novel. So these are very small books. They are nowhere near the size of the Left Behind books, which I think run about five to five to seven hundred pages. So um, they are along those same lines as far as an apocalyptic look. But they're very short and the action moves very fast. And this is the same with all of his books. Even the books published by authors through his Spring Creek Books, Book Company, are relatively small. Everything on Audible was either narrated by Chad himself, or by his son Seth, or by one of his daughters. So this is very definitely a family thing on audible they evidently either don't trust anyone else to read them or they don't want to pay anybody else to read them but they were all narrated by members of the daybell family so he has several different types of books from how to for instructional and motivational books for people in the more in the mormon faith or even in the mormon clergy and then there are other books which basically tell other people's near-death experiences uh, from a Nor- from a Mormon slant, an LDS slant. And then he has his, probably the thing, if he's famous for writing, the thing that he's most famous for writing is the Standing on Holy Ground four-book series which covers his interpretation of the end times. So I read one of his instructional books called The Arianic Priesthood. It was about 75 pages. I also read the first book in the Standing on Holy Ground series called Evading Babylon, and I'm going to kind of go over those with you today. So let's get started with the Arianic Priesthood. Arianic Priesthood, basically referring to people in the Mormon faith, particularly men in the Mormon faith, that are not at the the bishop or the elder status of clergy. Like in most Mormon church areas called wards, they have the elders, they have the bishop of the ward, which is kind of the president of the Mormon church's emissary to that area. Then he has kind of counselors under him, and then there are people under them, and then you kind of have the men in the rank and file, for lack of a better better way of talking. Uh, So this is actually a book for those in the rank and file, how they can best support those at the elder or the bishop level or the counselor level, all the way up to the president, how they can best serve under them. In their own wards so and it's based on aaron the brother of moses who was the first priest of the na- one of the first priests of the nation of israel uh helped build the uh the tabernacle tent once they were wandering in the desert the ark of the covenant you know uh put that together so that that kind of thing and he was considered even though he was the high priest of israel he was still considered subservient to his brother Moses. So to say somebody is of the Arianic priesthood in the Mormon church, it means they're of the lesser or smaller priesthood, if that makes sense. But um, so Chad Daybell uses examples from his childhood and also from famous Mormon sports figures, which he talked about a grand total of two that kind of exemplified what somebody in the everyday priesthood or the Arianic priesthood should do. Uh, He talked about uh, how that you shouldn't be ashamed that you're not an elder or a bishop or anything like that. You should still serve your ward, still serve the community. And then he talked about when Aaron died, the nation of Israel went into a 30 day mourning and how his Ministry was just as important as Moses's ministry, and then he went back to where he met a pretty where he went to his first Mormon conference now Mormons have like ward or state conferences where the you know the higher bishops in the area will speak or the the national conferences where the the president of the Mormon Church will speak, and he talked about going to one of those when he was in, in nineteen eighty two when he was a teenager and kind of sitting in the balcony and sitting there all day and then realizing that the seats down front in this particular temple were cushioned and that was a much more comfortable place to sit so he talked about actually chad daybell talked about actually going to the wall in the temple and reading the org chart evidently that's something that's big in the mormon church having a definitive you know, outline of who's in charge and who answers to who, and he saw that even at his level, that he could sit in the front row. So he got there, what you know, at just after midnight, and waited, waited until the morning when they opened the temple, and he was able to get a, an actual seat. And from there, he met one of the elders of that church that was actually in line to be president if this one, when this one leaves office or dies. And actually talked to him and realized that it was this, he said, this Holy Spirit of God that led him to that. So he could actually meet this person and learn that he was destined for greatness in the church. Yeah, I had the same reaction. Then he launches into this description of the Holy Spirit saying that it's a lot like electricity. We can't see it. We can't touch it. But we know it's there. Well, you can actually touch electricity. You've seen those little balls where people's hair shoot up. You're actually touching electricity. So anyway, no Chad. And then from there, he talked about a incident when he was young where he disobeyed his. His grandfather got chestnut and actually went up to this, these falls when he was camping with his family and ended up breaking his leg and he said the spirit told him not to go up there and that as a result he lost his entire summer and couldn't play little league and how if you disobey the holy spirit it's the same thing that you know his muscles his muscles atrophied during that time and what does your spirit do if you don't obey the spirit so he's like drawing analogies between parental control and listening to god so he told that story. This book was kind of discombobulated. Um, there were chapters, but the chapters, in my opinion, didn't really have a theme. It was just kind of Chad Daybell rambling. So there was a lot of jumping around. And actually, if you looked at the particular reviews on the Arianic Priesthood, they're quite low. Now, I don't know if this is you know since the crime and people are just coming there tanking his reviews or these were legitimate readers. But um, even... In the past, they were, you know, one one and a half and two star reviews. So, wasn't wasn't a very popular book, and I can see why. And then he starts talking about Steve Young, who went on to be a championship quarterback for the 49ers, being a quarterback at BYU, and how going against the Herschel Walker led Georgia Bulldogs back in the 80s and 90s. He threw five interceptions in a single half, and... When the coach stepped in to talk with him, he told the coach not to worry. He had it well in hand. And he makes that an analogy is that you should just let God handle everything. And then he talks about Hiram and Joseph Smith. and you know, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, essentially. And then his younger brother, Hiram, who was kind of a lesser priest. And he said that we're like Hiram, we're like Aaron kind of things, at least people in the Mormon church, the men in the Mormon church, this is directed toward men in the Mormon church, and then he talked a lot about patience and virtue, and then he talked about meeting Marion Romney, uh, who was an, uh, an elder probably related to Mitt Romney, and how he was a great man, and how Mitt Romney was a great man, and just A lot of weird stuff like that. So he just kept kind of going back and forth in this book. And in the very last chapter, he talks about Barry Boone who was a player, a Mormon player for the Atlanta Braves, who helped convert Dale Murphy, who was a great Braves player of the 80s, to Mormonism and how they both hit a home run for a child that they had visited in the Children's Hospital. And then from there, he kind of launches into keeping yourself pure and then launches into what can only be described as a just say no or dare lecture for children. And that's where that book ends. As I said, I understand why that one had such low reviews because it, I, even as an audible selection, I found it hard to get through. If I was actually trying to sit and read that and print, I would, I wouldn't have finished it. If this one was actually written and, wrote and read by Chad Daybell himself, so it was interesting to hear him speak for that long. He has a very nice voice, but the audio was a little janky. I mean, I should talk. I've had some really bad audios listening to some of my past videos, but you could almost hear... I If I didn't know better, I would swear they were using, like, an old-fashioned tape recorder because I swear sometimes I heard click and then click on again, so I don't know if they're computer was just that loud or their voice recorder was just that loud or they were actually using an old tape deck type recorder and then converting this to mp3 somehow i it was it's weird so that was just weird the audio was not normally what you would expect from audible you can definitely tell that the audible engineers have cleaned it up so there you go but uh, after i finished that book i was going to take a short break but then i saw the first book of his Standing on Holy Ground apocalyptic series on there for um, basically a bargain basement price of five dollars so I went ahead and bought that and that's the worst thing about this I don't like giving Chad Daybell my money so this book was actually pretty good as far as an adventure book goes like a very short adventure book and lots of people could understand this as long as they understood something about the Mormon religion but So it kind of makes me want to see how that entire series plays out, but I just don't know if I can give Chad Daybell any more money. So I'm kind of torn about that. Let me know down below after this review if you would like me to read or listen to the other three books in the series. And if you do, I will definitely do it, and I will report back to you on those as well. But for now, let's get into the very first book in the Standing on Holy Ground series, Evading Babylon read by Chad's son Chad and Tammy's son Seth All right so this book opens in Minneapolis, Minnesota ironically sometime between the 2006 recession and 2013ish So it's after the great recession but before the current the current situation that's going on now, because it talks a lot about dates and it kind of jumps around, but that's the exact thing that I get. And it is the, the future in the United States, uh, a U.S. that is going through they specific, a lot of turmoil. They specifically mentioned the Great Recession. Then they mentioned how we were continuously, the U.S. government was continuously going trillions of dollars in debt. That happens a lot. And then they were specifically talking about the Occupy Wall Street movements and the other Occupy movements, how they were becoming a real plague on the country, which is ironic, considering we are now going through a lot of looting and rioting and things like that in our own current day. So some of this really did hit home. I mean, it's kind of general because this stuff does happen a lot. But, you know, there were the Watts riots going all the way back to the 60s. And, you know, the Harlem riots and things like that. So this kind of stuff has always happened in American history. So I have to say that to say this was spot on would be putting it out there because it's still kind of generalized, but it did kind of hit hit home. And so we opened up in Minneapolis, Minnesota at a regional ward conference for the LDS Church, a young... Uh, Missionary by the name of Nathan Foster foils an attempted bombing on the ward conference by a excommunicated former elder by the name of Kurt Jessup. Now, I think that's really ironic because two of the major leaders of the past leaders of the Mormon Church was gentlemen gentleman by the name of William E. Jessup, Merle Jessup, and then they've had their attempted bomber named Jessup as well, and I had a note here that says Nathan. I think it's really funny they named the bomber Kurt Jessup because they already had a Nathan. I was just thinking Nathan and Jessup, you know, the, the colonel from A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth! That's what I thought about, and that they couldn't handle the truth, but still just kind of ironic that they named their excommunicated former elder that attempted this bombing after two well-known members of the LDS church that are considered historical leaders that were members of the fringe that allows polygamy and other things like that. So at this time that this was written, I can tell that Chad Daybell was still kind of pro-conventional Mormon church. So he was kind of taking digs at the sect of Mormonism that favored polygamy, you know, lots of children. So he was kind of taking a jab at that by making the villain in this initial scene somebody with the same name as those former elders that led fringe operations. And then I thought about a few good men, and then I spiraled into, like I do, down a rabbit hole. But, so anyway, he foils the... The bombing, by tackling the guy, he says he was led by the Holy Spirit to stop him. He tackled him in the hallway, threw the bomb outside to an empty courtyard, and it exploded out there. And then, of course, Minneapolis police converge, and it becomes national news. So, young Nathan is taken to the local Minneapolis hospital, where uh, President Warren of the National Mormon Conference, of the National Mormon Church, and an elder Smith, who's in the Salt Lake City Ward, visit him in the hospital. Uh, That's where Elder Smith tells Nathan that he was once a disciple or an apostle, which anyone high up in a ward or high up in the church is known as an apostle, was an apostle of Kurt, the bomber, would-be bomber, before he was excommunicated. And then... They don't really say why Kurt was excommunicated. I suspect it was because he was, you know, probably a marriage pluralist because he was named after two people that were marriage pluralists. Uh, Then he launches into a tirade about the United States legalizing gay marriage. So this is probably after 2015 when that Supreme Court decision came down. So we're sometime around probably the election of Trump, which would mean this is kind of, you know, There was a lot of heated debate in the country. So I'm thinking that's where we are. But then um, that'll be a theme. You'll see a lot of tirades about gay marriage from one character or another during this and how the church won't reverse their stance on there. That it's okay to be gay, you just can't act on it. Like they have men in the church that admit, or women in the church that admit to same-sex feelings, but they're not allowed to act on it. So it's like you can be, but you can't. And they were basically saying they had no intention of reversing that decision. There were several tirades about that. But then um, he kind of talks to Nathan a little bit and kind of tries to get some of Nathan's past out of him. And Nathan tells him uh, about his home in Orum, Utah. And his former girlfriend, Marie Shaw, who kind of drifted away from the religion when she went to the University of Utah, but he still has feelings for, and how his mom got cancer and died and a lot of family financial problems. He had to give up his college at Utah State and come home and help his mom. He also talked about her and and his dad's Garrett divorce. Um, And that he hasn't really spoken to his father since. And his father has since been excommunicated from the church because he left his wife after she, you know, just before she got sick and then had remarried and had another child, which, you know, I guess was forbidden or at least in Chad Daybell's eyes was forbidden. And then uh, Elder Smith gives the young man a card with his secretary's number on it in Salt Lake City and tells him to call this number if he would be interested to call his secretary and make an appointment if he would be interested in a job working for the church he tells him it's a very special discipleship program and it's something that he thinks he's well suited for and to call his secretary if he's interested and he then excuses himself and leaves then we cut to marie shaw his ex-girlfriend driving back back from school to Orin for Memorial Day weekend. And she's listening to a radio report about the Minneapolis bonding and bombing. Of course, she's thinking about Nathan and what could have been. And then we are treated to some choice music of the day. A song that she says was written by Lady Gaga comes on, and it says, the lyrics are, Be hip, be hip, it's hip to get the chip. And the name of the band singing it are the Electric Chippies, which is just asinine. But anyway, she's just commenting on how she can tell that Lady Gaga wrote it. And then later on, when she gets home, she greets her parents. Her father, Aaron, actually works for the National Security Administration data center in Utah. Her mom's a homemaker. So she actually gets home and talks to them. And then the president comes on and is talking about the chip. The chip is a little capsule, kind of like, you know, the Theranos chick did with the blood test, a little capsule that is actually inserted into the back of one of your hands, and all your personal information is kept there. You don't have to carry credit cards or ID or anything. It's all right there. And the president is showing how he got one and how it just simplifies your life and gives people a greater greater security because people can't rob and take it from you and that it's just a lot more secure and he tells everyone about a two thousand dollar tax credit if they get it they said they're setting up chip implementation centers all over the country and that if you get it before the end of the year it'll be free and you get the two thousand dollar tax credit but if you don't get it You still, you have to pay for it if you decide to get it afterwards and you lose the $2,000 tax credit. Well, both, Marie doesn't really think anything of it. Then it cuts to Nathan watching it in the hospital and he says, well, somebody else can just have my $2,000 because I'm not letting the government track me like that. So cut to, and then it kind of goes into a, tirade about how we're tracked by cell phones and we're tracked by social media, which is absolutely true, but he just breaks, Nathan just breaks into this tirade in his head. And then we cut to him going, flying home from Minneapolis back to Orin, Utah, and how he was expecting an elder from the church by the name of Bishop Tanner to pick him up and take him to his mom's sister's house where he was expecting to live uh while he was back in town until he figured out what his next step was but instead his father his you know father he hasn't had contact with Garrett is there and uh actually picks him up and says he's already spoken to his mom's sister and that he wants to offer him the opportunity to stay with him he'll help him get a job and get a car and so Nathan wanting to reform that bond with his father says yes they go to Garrett's house. He meets Vanessa, his stepmother, and Denise, his half-sister, and they have a very pleasant conversation. Then cut to the next Sunday where Nathan's at the local temple giving his testimony after his mission in Minneapolis, and he sees Marie and her parents come into the temple, and he's very excited to to meet to see them again, and they invite him over for... Essentially Punch and Pie. Tell them we'll have Punch and Pie. We're not going to have Punch and Pie. My people will come if they think we have Punch and Pie. I kid you not. That, that evening. So he agrees and goes over for a visit. So at that conversation, they eat. Uh, Marie and he kind of talk, you know, decide they're going to start hanging out again. And then Nathan tells... Um, them about what happened in Minneapolis and then Marie's dad Aaron Shaw has a long conversation with Nathan about how he really fears what the government's doing because he sees it because he works at the NSA data center and that right now the chip implementation is is voluntary but he truly suspects at least for federal employees like him it will become mandatory and he doesn't want to do it because the government the government doesn't need to know where they are all the time, and that he really fears that that'll be the case and advises Aaron to stay away from government work. Okay, speaking of work, the next day Nathan calls the number that the bishop gave him and talks to the secretary and makes an appointment with them on that following Friday at 9 a.m. in Salt Lake City as an interview for this MM project. And he also makes plans to see Marie at her uh, student apartment in Salt Lake that same day for lunch after his interview. Well, he's also, by the way, working the night shift now, restocking a local Toys R Us. So we know it was definitely before Toys R Us went bankrupt and stocking toys overnight. And that's the job his dad helped him get. And his dad also helped him get a used car. So fast forward to the Friday meeting, he goes to this meeting, he interviews with Elder Smith, who under no certain terms tells them that he's only here because he was suggested by an elder and that because of his actions at the conference, they really thought he was a fine young man and they wanted to invite him to the MM project, which would basically be doing manual labor and some security for a huge Mormon church project. Aaron says, it sounds like fun. What, what's the pay? And he says, well, there is no pay. The pay is that you get to live here at the Salt Lake City um, facilities in one of our apartments, and we take care of all your food and all your other needs, and you'll be in front line when the project goes down. And so he goes, so that's, that's the thing. He said, you won't have much time for anything else. This is going to take up the majority of your time. And then he said, so I will give you until next Friday to make up your mind. If you decide you don't want to make this commitment, call my secretary back just like you did to accept the interview and tell her you're not interested or be here again next Friday at 9 a.m. for orientation. And that's pretty much all he told him. So this is a super secret project with a super secret interview. So he goes to pick up Marie from her apartment. They go to lunch. There's some commenting in his brain how he doesn't like the fact that her uh, shirt's a little low cut, high-cut and her uh, skirt's a little high. And then he gets all judgy. And then once they eat lunch and get back to her apartment, she's greeted by her roommate, who gives her a letter from a company called Naples & Austin, which is a PR firm in Chicago. And they offer marie her dream internship that she's interviewed for and offer her the opportunity to move to chicago on their dime they will put her up in a condo in their huge office building which is on the 60th floor of the bloomingdale building on uh, chicago's famous uh, marvelous Mile, where their uh all their apartment all their huge tall skyscrapers are magnificent mile where all their huge tall skyscrapers are and that she's going to be able to live there and work and draw a salary and that it but there was one catch they wanted her to come before she finished her current semester and to finish her semester online and marie is all excited and says yes she's definitely going to do it well of course nathan heart sinks because he's wanting to get back with her and now she's going to Chicago he's probably going to be in this program so he doesn't really see a future for them and he gets real depressed so Nathan drives back to Orin thinking about all this and stops at Maria's parents house and goes in and has a talk with them and they get all judgy about Marie about how she's left the church and how they don't want her to take this internship but it appears her mind is made up because they've already talked with her on the phone And then they start having a conversation where a lot of the older elders are passing away at a greater rate than ever before, and they make the comment that it's like they have something else to do on the other side of the veil. And then, again, he reiterates the fact that he really thinks mandatory chipping is coming and again warns Nathan, don't go to work for the government. So Nathan essentially makes up his mind, he's going to do this program, so he goes into his shift that night at Toys R Us and by the end of it, he's totally made up his mind and he quits on the spot and tells his boss, you'll have no problem filling my position and basically gets ready to pack up everything he owns and move to Salt Lake City to undergo a position with this MM project. So evidently, not giving a two-week notice is not a sin in Aaron Daybell and Chad Daybell's eyes. All right. So we fast forward to the next Friday at 9 a.m. where he arrives in a suit with a bunch and there's a bunch of other boy, uh, boys about his age there. And they're all going into this conference room at the Salt Lake City Temple. And they face again Elder Miller, who's telling them about their actual assignment. MM Project, Maintenance Missionary Project. And that it would be the focus of 99.9% of their time. And if they weren't ready for that kind of commitment, then leave now. And essentially three of the people in the room get up and walk out and quit that very moment. But after they've left, he shows them a scripture from the Book of Mormon where Joseph Smith's talking about the end of days and how the saints will stand on holy ground and then he goes into a long tirade about how the usa has failed in its blessed mission because new jerusalem is supposed to be in the u.s and here we haven't lived up to our standards and he says that the book of mormon predicts a huge sickness is coming that will pretty much destroy the united states and that they have a duty to clear the saints out of that and move them to the holy places so what the Mormon Church is doing is buying all of these camps in remote areas in the Rockies and some in the East Coast, but most of them are in the West in the Rockies. And since most Mormons are in the West, Idaho, Arizona, Utah, California, appear to be the greatest concentrations of them, that they are to be the crew that gets these camps ready and also when the time comes, help move the saints there. And that when the time comes, the president of the Mormon church will send letters to all the ward bishops telling them that they have until that evening to tell all of their people to that wants to go, that wants to be protected from what's coming, to be there with one suitcase of their belongings. A bus will pick them up and take them to their new homes, which will be these camps. that will be completely stocked with food, have security, have shelter. All that good stuff, and they say this should not come as a surprise because we've been warning the church all along that this day was coming. And so these guys would be responsible for doing various jobs to help get the camps ready. And the people that go when the first calling is announced will go to what they call white chip camps, which are for the first saints. And then anybody else that doesn't go but then has regrets and joins later will be gone to blue chip camps or blue camps because they didn't get on the bus when they start when they, when the first started. Also no one that has been chipped by the government, the little government chip, will be allowed to go. And essentially they have until Monday morning to return. Monday morning if they decide to take the job, they are to be back in Salt Lake with one suitcase and be prepared for this to be their lives. That he tells them to sell their cars to sell all their possessions except what they absolutely have to have to survive, that will fit in one suitcase, because this is the end times. This is the real shit. This is coming. And Nathan decides to take the job, returns to Oren, and tells his dad that he to, keep, to try to sell his car, sell anything else, keep the money. He pa- and then he decides he's going to pack up what little bit he can put in a suitcase and return to take the job. Meanwhile, he does have another meeting with Marie. She says she's leaving for Chicago in two weeks. Then he goes home for dinner, and they see a special news report that Southern California has been hit by a 7.6 Richter scale uh, earthquake that has almost flattened Los Angeles. Then we cut to Beijing, China, because, of course, we do. And there's a Chinese uh, Secret Service work uh, agent there by the name of Chen Ming who is codenamed Dragon, that's how we'll refer to him, that is being told to pack for a trip, that his mission has been sped up. And he is meeting with some high-ranking officials, watching the news about the earthquake, and they tell him that because of this, they need to basically up their speed up their plan to destroy the United States. This is a co-plan by China and Russia, because of course it is. And he's given... A suitcase with four canisters in it that is handcuffed to him at all times and he says he's to immediately go into the u.s under an assumed name and set uh, meet with their other agents that are actually americans they've hired to do this and prepare for whatever operation they're going to do so we watch him go back to his apartment in downtown beijing and then he's Getting on a train to go to Europe to make his way across the, to the United States without trace, so he's not going to fly. And he's thinking about where he's going to move once he gets his big payout, and he's thinking about actually going to the Rocky Mountains of the USA to retire. Then we fast forward to Sunday night before Nathan is to start in Salt Lake City, and he goes to visit Marie one last time and Oren before, he, Oren before he leaves, and he interrupts a fight between her and her parents, and they're basically having the big fight about she doesn't need to go, they fear what's coming, please don't go to Chicago, and she says she's going. Nathan sides with her parents, so she gets mad at Nathan and tells him, don't call me anymore. And then he leaves, gets on a bus the next morning and goes to the Salt Lake City Temple, is herded in where Elder Miller is addressing the crowd, and they're shown an organization chart that shows who all's in charge. They are taken to these different stations where they're shown different tasks and different tests they take all these different tests to show their aptitudes and then they are assigned their jobs they are also shown that what they will be issued is a one cell phone with everybody in the program's number already programmed into it they will receive a handgun that they hope they never have to use and they will receive a key to their apartment here on campus so they're all assigned their duties which nathan will be a truck driver making deliveries from their main warehouses to the camps and then he's taken to his apartment where he meets his roommate chet who's also a delivery driver and they take he talks about how he's been all over the country making these deliveries and how he's got to go to canada the next day and um, their supervisor shows up and gives them their assignments and he's going to Canada. Nathan is actually going to a camp in Utah to help deliver food there. So, he sees what he's going to be doing for the next few weeks. Then we cut to Marie, who's getting off her plane at O'Hare in Chicago, mad because Nathan hasn't called her, even though she didn't tell it. She told him not to. And then she meets Bianca, who is the personal assistant to the head of the advertising agency, PR agency, where she's going. And uh, she and this young assistant's name is Bianca. She tells uh, Marie how wonderful Chicago is, how she will never even have to leave the Bloomingdale building because it literally has everything that, that you need, and that she's so excited she has someone her own age and good that she can go out with her. And uh, she tells Bianca that she's a devout Mormon and doesn't drink. So Bianca's like, well, at least I'll have a designated driver. And then they talk about all the money that's to be made and All this stuff. And so they finally get to the office building. And to where they're supposed to be going. And to. Bianca takes. Marie up to the receptionist. Who says okay. Just scan your chip. And Marie says I don't have the chip. And she says Bianca and the receptionist. Just look at her like she has. Lobsters coming out of her nose. And they say, well you kind of have to have the chip. To get in certain parts of the building. she says but there's a, a station downstairs. We'll. We'll take you down. So she goes in for her interview or her meeting with her boss, Gretchen, who is the head of the PR firm, and she they have a nice little chat, and she gives her keys to her condo, and then mentions that she does kind of have to have the chip to, to kind of maneuver here. So, you know, Marie re- reluctantly agrees to get it, and then... She says, well, I hired you not only because of your talent and how well you interview, but because you are so devoutly religious. And I hope you're not going to get here and start drinking and partying like all the other girls that I've hired. So this is like another moral tirade. And so she says, oh, no, I don't drink. So you don't have to worry about that. So they finish their interview. She goes, puts her stuff into her apartment and they go down and get her chipped. And then we cut to yet another scene. We cut to Aaron at his job at the NSA uh, data center. And he runs a check on his daughter and sees that she was indeed chipped. And he's very upset with her for doing that. And then we cut back to Nathan's memory of a conference where he was doing, he was working as a missionary there and how he got into an argument with a protester for gay marriage. And then the prophet there suddenly announced that they were going to call all their home all their missionaries home and this is i guess in the the last few weeks the timeline was hard to follow so it looks as though they're calling all missionaries home so to Nathan this is an indication that the letters sending people to the camps are about to go out then we cut to beijing and dragon is on his way to europe and then from dragon he get from europe he gets on a spanish boat and gets to the Bahamas, and then from the Bahamas, he gets a fe- secures a fake ID and gets to uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, where he gets a hotel room to meet with the other three agents. All right, so he gets a knock on his hotel room, and there's a redheaded dude standing there. He asks him the password, he gets it. Uh, his this agent is an American with a code name FIRE, then there's a Hispanic man with the code name water and then there's a black woman with the code name wind and they all come in they each take one of those four silver containers and they he says to make sure you don't get pulled over he puts them in big gulp cups put the puts a lid on it and a straw in there and gives it to them and says that they have fully gassed cars with lots of cash in it so they need to head for their destinations so Wind is heading for New York City, water for L.A., fire to the Bay Area of California, and then drag to Salt Lake City because it's the gateway to the west. And so what they're going to do is release a contagion into the atmosphere by, via as many people as they can that's actually a mixture of an H1N5 flu that was a hybrid that the Norwegians worked on for some reason. And then uh, a little bit of the Spanish flu from 1918, which is total bullshit, because the only copy we have of that germ or that virus is one taken out of a fossilized victim of it from Antarctica. So that's bullshit. And so anyway, it's also been mixed with some other things. It's a super deadly virus that will kill you with a pneumonia-like drowning in your own fluids, kind of respiratory ailments, kind of sounds like COVID. But anyway, that's their plan. Their plan is to go to release that into into as many people as they can. So they're all going to go to high traffic places and contaminate things so that people start spreading it around. Then we go to back to Nathan who's just delivering away and we're listening to more tirades about gay marriage and things like that. And I'm going to super fast forward again about two weeks where it shows Nathan and Chet, his roommate, picking up huge loads of all these tents and taking them to certain campsites and getting them ready. So now people are ready to start moving in, it appears. Then we fast forward to a time when they were told to wear a suit come to Salt Lake City. They did. They're given the envelopes to actually take these to the actual bishops of each ward. There's a sign-in sheet. They can give it to nobody but the bishop. The bishop has to open it with a witness. And then the, the temple elders will call and confirm that they received it. And they give them basically wards around the West to go deliver these. And Nathan delivers his to Spanish Fort Utah. When he goes back, they tell them to prepare Sunday, they will be actually going with the buses and the semi-trucks to pick up people's belongings, and they're going to the camps. So, only about half of the congregation of Nathan's hometown, which Orem, which he was sent to do the uh, extraction from, show up, he drops them at the camp, he has to make sure no one is chipped. Uh, Meanwhile, we cut to Marie in Chicago. She seems very busy, but she goes down on a Sunday to this stained-glass window museum and feels a call to go back to church. So she promises she'll be in church the next Sunday. And then she sees on the news where Mormons have disappeared all over the country. Kind of sounds like a Mormon rapture. And then kind of some more hysteria kind of takes over. Oh, and there's also... A Category 5 hurricane that's hitting South America and is about to hit Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Let's add that in for fun. Fast forward to Dragon in Salt Lake City. He's gotten a job at Energy Solutions Arena as a janitor where he plans to infect the bathrooms and the arena itself. And then he laughs about how these rednecks coming to wrestling events will be the one to spread it around. He hears from the lady in New York City who's gotten a Work is in, in the concession stand at Madison Square Garden. She's going to infect the hot dog condiments. And then uh, the, the guy in San Francisco is working events at the Moscone Center. He's going to infect all the equipment at all these conferences. And then Wend is at the Staples Center providing relief to the, her- to the earthquake victims. And he's spiking the sheets and the pillows with the sludge. And then we're shown what's inside the containers. It's just purple sludge that is infected with all these viruses. And then you have more news about the hurricane called Hurricane Barton hitting the United States and shutting down all the oil wells. This is a ride and a half, y'all. So fast forward to Dragon trying to infect a bathroom. He's basically caught by his supervisor. She wants to know what strange thing he's mixing with the water. And so he basically tries to knock her unconscious by knocking her against the wall. He thinks she's dead. He puts her in a closet and he leaves, but he gets so scared that he, first of all, touches himself with the gloves he's been wearing, so he's pretty much infected himself, and then he realizes that he's left the container of sludge at the center. Well, he didn't kill his supervisor. She called the cops. He sees cops and SWAT team and everything else pull up. He sees her taken away in an ambulance, and then he sees a news reporter down there talking about how they found some strange substance that was left by a, Asian janitor. And so now he realizes he's really screwed up. He didn't feel his part of the, the plan and that the Chinese government's probably going to execute him. So he makes a run for the nearby train station. People go into his hotel looking for him. I don't know how they made that connection so quick. Probably, they Maybe he gave... I don't know. Maybe he gave the same fake name at his job that he was using to get there. But anyway... He sees them go to his hotel, then immediately head checking the train and the bus stations, and he feels that he doesn't have any choice. That he's, he's not going to get his pay out because he failed. He's going to lose everything he's ever done for the Chinese government because they're going to turn their back on him and deny and he's going to go to jail. So he steps in front of a train and kills himself. And then there's this whole panic because there is a, a minor outbreak in Salt Lake City, so that kind of entertains everybody on the news. And then there's outbreaks in San Francisco and New York because the other people did do their missions and they've already fled the coop with all their money. Now, there are all these people getting sick, dying of what they're calling the black flu because it turns your skin black. And, and remember the whole thing about Mormons not, not their whole stand on people of black skin. And then you see the government wanting to halt a total catastrophe makes chipping mandatory so they can track everybody. And they shut down all travel from state to state as well as airport travel. So you have all these people trapped. And then you have the MM Project call all their volunteers in and tell them they're pretty much cut loose. Their job is to go to their hometowns, get as many people as they can to the blue camps, and then go to a white, a white camp themselves. So Nathan heads back to Orin. He finds his sister alone in in his dad's house because his dad and stepmom had gone to California to help some relatives that were caught in the earthquake. And she fears that they're dead because they caught the virus. So he takes his little sister, his little half sister over to Maria's parents' house who were getting ready to actually go to to a camp as soon as they can find Marie. They're worried about Marie. Then we cut to Marie in Chicago and you talk to her boss who's telling them, okay, The president has just made an announcement that we're locking down. Sounds familiar. Well, people are rioting all over the place. And so they've decided to basically sequester within their office building. Well, Marie goes back to her apartment to get what food's in it and come back and lock themselves in the office. Uh, And then she kind of feels the Holy Spirit tell her don't do that. So she actually leaves. She goes to the stained glass window museum and ask the person to lock her in there because she has nowhere else to go so the person does and so she's trapped there nathan volunteers to drive cross-country in his car that his father is still sitting in his father's garage to pick it try to get to marie so um Aaron shaw gives him a tracker to track marie's chip and also gives him 500 dollars in cash and tells him to take back roads to try to avoid state checkpoints Well, he does it quite fine on the back roads until he makes it to Iowa, right on the Wisconsin-Illinois-Iowa border. And he has to stop at a Walmart. Well, he finds somebody, two nurses, they say, that have Illinois plates that are going to try to get across uh, the river into Illinois. And he asks them if he could ride in the trunk. He's not chipped. They can't track him. He could ride in the trunk. He'll give them each $100. Now, he only has like $300 left, so he's going to give them most of his money. And they say, okay, they'll do it. And then they play really loud music and they keep saying CDs. So, okay, we're in the night, we've worked back to the 90s. And so the CD dies at one point after he hears them get across the, the guards, say, okay, go save some lives, your nurses. They let him across and he hears them talking about how they're going to take all of his money and possessions. And if he doesn't give it to them, they're going to threaten to turn him in for not being chipped. So he looks for an internal latch in the trunk, and he waits till they stop. The Holy Spirit, again, tells him, get out here, and he does, and he takes off down the street. Okay, he run, He realizes he's pretty close to where he needs to be, to where he looks where Marie's chip is. He sees he's only about a 100 yards away. Then these gang members that work for this Occupy Chicago gangster that Aaron had told him before he left they were tracking they try to get at him he shoots one of them he runs he finally gets to Marie in the stained glass window museum and now the book ends with everything going to hell and they're trapped here and now they have to get back to Utah and so that's Chad Daybell's first apocalyptic book in his series Standing on Holy Ground let me know what you think I think it was just uh it's very close to any apocalyptic literature I've ever I've ever heard. The the tracking of people by marking their head or their hand, the end of times, it's all pretty standard. But um it was fairly interesting. You know, if I can find that book for a nickel at a yard sale, I might pick up one of the next ones and read it. But if you'd like me to read the rest and tell you the rest of the story, let me know down below. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh Chad Daybell, fair rider. I guess. But still, don't care for him. So anyway, I can't understand how that particular book caused Lori Vallow to like become obsessed with him. Because that's the one she read. I can't understand how that made her obsessed because that doesn't make me obsessed. It makes me kind of wonder what happens next, but that's it. Anyway, so I guess we'll have to find out who the real villain is here. But anyway, please, if you... If you're wanting to support the channel, links are down below. Like, comment, share, subscribe. Drop a like or a comment about this. Let me know what you think. And until next time, Keto comic.